0: Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts
1: Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Today we are joined by Dr. Attractor Lagan. Who is a leading Australian business ethicist who has worked extensively in the corporate and government areas in Australia and throughout Asia. She draws on the latest research from behaviour science to work alongside organisational leaders in designing preferred workplace cultures. She has focused her attention on developing the social infrastructure necessary to embed risk management to enable governance and accountability to become a shared responsibility throughout an organisation. Attractor has worked alongside the leaders of many major enterprises in Australia and Asia, helping ex teams measure and benchmark culture, draft organizational values, and engage all organizational members with their ethical accountabilities. She is the Director of Managing Values, PTY Limited. She has a PhD in sociology and ecology, and a number of publications, including Why Business Ethics Matters, 3D Ethics. Ethics of AI, White Paper, Business Ethics, White Paper, and over 40 articles in professional magazines. Welcome, Attractor.
2: Oh, thank you very much
0: for having me. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about um, your business ethicist um, behavioral culture.
2: Okay. So um, behavior science, which is so... Often ethics is approached from two from two um, directions. You can either approach it from philosophy, and mainly people focus on morals then the morals of individuals and the character of the individual and If you can get the right person, then you 'll get the right culture. Behavior science comes out from a different approach. it says, well, actually, the organizational context is more important than the character. And the science shows us that people will actually change their value system if they find themselves in a context under pressure. So we say, if you want to change organizational behaviour, change the context first, and then start working on the individual character. It's just a, it's a different approach, but ours is based on science as opposed to philosophy.
0: And how do you find um, organisations engaging with that type of method?
2: Well, organizations that are in it for the long term engage in it because, uh, first of all, they measure culture and they benchmark year-on-year improvements against measured indices. So those organizations, particularly organizations with valuable brands, will make that investment because it's not a short-term fix. Um, organizational culture is really dynamic. Every day, people, um, Every time a person comes into an organization, they're either changing it, they're challenging it, or they're reinforcing it. So it's never it's never a, a status quo. It's always changing. So you have to be measuring it all the time. And then when you have that measurement, you've got to be holding leaders accountable in each of the areas to say, well, have your metrics improved year on year. So... Back to your question, I find large companies with um, valuable brands get it immediately, uh, especially when they're working across Asia, because they recognise that it just takes one little country to damage the brand name. So they make sure everyone knows that 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 uh, they carry the um, the values of the brand, no matter which country you're operating in. Here in Australia, um, it's been I think the Australian marketplace has been dominated by philosophers. And this idea that it's all about the, you know, the character of the individual, whereas the science tells us none of us are as ethical as we think we are. Um, In fact, we're predictably irrational. Um, The great thing about behavior science is that uh, it's a relatively new science. It's a combination of psychology, sociology, um, evolutionary science, but already it's won three noble economic prizes. And I stress the economic prizes. Or its practitioners, because it's proved to be so valuable for business. So, for example, Richard um, Thaler, he developed nudge theory, which is now used in every government department around the world, and many of the large corporates use it. And basically, uh, that premise is, is that people make irrational choices, but you can nudge them to make choices that are in their best interest. Uh, so you can have that organisational intervention. Then Eleanor Ostrom, she won the Nobel Prize Um, because she showed that far from the assumption that we're all actually competitive with each other, we're actually pro-social. We actually want to collaborate. We've come out of, you know, uh, working in groups and tribes. So we're predisposed to be social. And that's never been more obvious than in COVID-19 when we saw the nurses and the doctors and everyone stepping up and volunteering to help people, uh, despite the obvious costs to themselves. So, Business is often based on that erroneous assumption that it's all about um, extrinsic satisfaction. You've got to reward people to do the right thing. But in fact, you don't. You just actually have to say to people, look, if we all work together and you are naturally predisposed to be pro-social, we can together build this culture where we can all benefit. So it's, it's a very different approach. And then the last Nobel Prize was won for, uh, was won by, I'm trying to think of was named Anyway, his was again for bringing psychology to economic decisions. And that's where behavioral economics came from, basically. The idea that, you know, well, not the idea, the science tells us we're not rational, big people. We're actually highly emotional. And we have to take that into consideration. People don't make decisions in their best interests. They make decisions out of various other frames. Maybe it's loyalty to family members. Uh, maybe it's that they're tired and they're under pressure. So we can't assume that people are logical. It's a very different starting point. Yeah.
1: So from your from a behavioural science perspective, what sort of influence has social media had on
2: cultural, ethical culture? On organisational culture. Yeah. Well, it's... It's sort of like it's the last tearing off the corporate veil. Now people can look into organizations. So when you have organized, when you have media sites like um, uh, what's the one where you can rate every organization, your employer, you can look up immediately and see uh, are they a good place to work for. Um, where people can take to social media if they feel they've been bullied in the workplace, or if they see that there's obvious conflicts of interest. So social media, to that extent, has enabled a speak-up culture, which, which wasn't really available uh, and isn't really available for a lot of organizations. On the downside, there's lots of downside as well. Uh, social media um, has made organizations very vulnerable. Again, if you have that valuable brand name, it only takes some one of your employees to uh, tweet out or make a a comment that uh, is um, so against your organizational values that it calls your your organization into into, uh, disrepute. We saw that in, uh, I don't know if you know the case of the young lady walking her dog in the car park in New York, and a black guy asked her to put her dog on a lead. And uh, she said, look, um, you're intimidating me, and... um, he called the, the the police, and he was filming her on her her phone the whole time. And she said to the police, "There's a black guy intimidating me. I'm at you know such and such a location." So it was a very provocative statement, um, um, drawing attention to his color during the Black Lives Matter. Well, she lost her job. The financial house that she worked for said that's just com- so ple- so completely against our value system. You know, we value our black employees. And uh, that was a provocative statement. Um, so, yeah, it, it has consequences. Um, often what we find in ethics is that people are very good at canvassing the upside of a decision. OK, well, you know, here's this guy hassling me. I'll ring the police and that will scare him. Uh, but what they don't canvass is the downside. Oh, well, the wider context is we're now in this moment in American history where black lives matter, matter and I could be seen as being racist and provocative here, and I could maybe lose my job, and I could, you know, bring uh, my organisation, uh, media attention to my organisation. So didn't canvas the downside, and that's how we slip over the line. We only canvass the upside, and the, the downside of a decision is always the ethical dimension, so we need to be canvassing that as well.
0: So with the canvassing the downside, is that something that uh, you take into account when conducting behavioural science uh, in organisations?
2: Yes. Well, what? So, again, that's a nudge. If you use an ethical decision-making model, it's a nudge to think much broader about the decision you're making. Again, if you look at the global financial crisis, basically the financial industry was only canvassing the upside, you know, we'll develop these very sophisticated products, we'll be able to sell to new people and new markets. But what they didn't canvass was the potential downside that uh, you could actually destabilise and the financial markets, which is what actually happens. So by encouraging people to use an ethical decision-making model, you're nudging them to think much widely, much more widely, and you're nudging them to think not just the short term but also the long term.
1: What sort of changes are going to have to occur in ethical culture because of
2: COVID? Well, COVID um, has been very good at focusing our deten- our attention on the human dimension. Now, the human dimension, the human backstory was always there, but we sort of ignored it and we talked about human resources and we used people like almost like other assets of the business. Well, now we realise that human beings are human beings and you've got to look at them both their private life and their public life. So, for example, many organisations have been very good at um, trying to reassure their people, their staff, even though they're working from home, that they are still part of the group, um, making deliberate um, opportunities for coffee get togethers via Zoom, for CEOs to make Zoom messages to their staff. So we're much more uh, aware of the social needs of individuals as before COVID, we really just focus on the economic needs and we try to ignore all that emotional stuff. Whereas COVID has exposed that, you know, you can't do that. If people are downshifting and they're very stressed and they're afraid of, you know, what the future will bring, we've got to try and reassure them some way. As we say, people downshift into what we call foundation values. And it's up to leaders to push them back into focus values where they can do the best that they can. Because when you're in focus values, you're basically spending most of your time protecting your back. You're worrying about things. So you're worrying about your future. So about 80% of your time is focused on survival. But that only leaves 20% for the job, really. So it's in the organization's interest as well to keep you on focus values. Because when you're in focus values, then you can start to you know, think about you can actually start to think about the future. So here I'm doing my job today. Um, I'll be working from home remotely for maybe the next six months. But in the future, we'll be able to get back into the office and continue as before, or maybe, hopefully not as before, a bit more socially sensitive than we were before.
0: And have you got any um, uh, really amazing examples of uh, where this behavioural science has actually... um, reduced or eradicated fraud within businesses
2: okay well i think what behavior science does is it it helps nurture an ethical culture um, so it's it's very much systems thinking uh, fraud is the symptom of a non-ethical culture it's only one of the many symptoms you know bullying is a simple is a symptom of an unethical culture conflicts of interest are a symptom of an unethical uh, culture as is fraud so when you start when you start from the, the the beginning premise leaders can design an organizational culture to make it as easy as possible for their people to do the right thing you start to eliminate fraud so for example in fraud's specific case almost well, just over 50% of frauds are actually, um, management is alerted to them by the employees, not by the external auditor, not even by the internal auditor, by employees, sometimes anonymously and sometimes not. So organisations are dependent on the pro-social orientation of employees to warn them about uh, possible frauds. Now, the more you can engage with people and their pro-social orientations, the sooner you'll actually get alerted to those things that are happening inside the organization. So the challenge for organizational leaders is to design a culture where it's as easy as possible for employees to raise issues of concern. Um, Typically what happens is that people raise issues of concern and managers don't know how to respond to it because they haven't been promoted for their uh, personal skills. They've been promoted for their technical skills. And so they might say things like, well, you know, um, oh, it'll sort itself out or don't burden me with this. So they don't take the appropriate action at the right time. So when you design a culture uh, purposely, you, you design it from the perspective the employee is going to raise the fraud issue with their manager first. We know that from the science. So how do we train those people to respond appropriately? so that the message gets heard, so that the organisation learns very early where where things are unravelling. And it's all about organisational learning. We say don't focus on the person, focus on the context. Develop that context. So get away from the blame game. Say, how did the system fail its people rather than blaming the people?
1: I was reading um, one of your articles, and I think you referred to the Two thousand and eighteen, Ernst and Young report about people's reluctance to, or to sort of still um, lodge whistleblowing. Yes,
2: Compliance. yes, yeah. It's
1: part. It's part and parcel, isn't it? It's just a yeah. a lack of. Well,
2: it is, but you know, I I think that it's a challenge for leaders. Leaders need to encourage that. They need to even managers. If if everyone sat down with their group every week and said. And um, what are the issues you faced this week? Because we know you'll be facing issues because there's all these competing tensions between the organization's values and getting the business done and getting the output. So we know those tensions are there. Where were the tensions for you this week? Where were the things that you find challenging? So it starts at the top. We say, you know, culture is the length and shadow of the people at the top. So if they're not asking those questions, they're not signaling which is what people, you know, listen with their eyes. So they're not signaling to people, it's okay to to bring up these issues. So that's the challenge for leaders, to start asking those questions on a regular basis. And sure, in the short term, it's going to present many issues. But in the long term, it's not. It's going to give you a very sustainable culture where you will be forewarned of any issues before you read about them in the media or someone tells you someone's talking about it on a chat line or a Zoom. Because that's the thing, you, you know, You it'll if you can't talk about it inside the organisation, people are going to find a way to talk about it outside the organisation. And you want people to talk about it inside the organisation so you get to learn first and then you can fix it, yeah.
0: So from a, um, I guess, a risk management perspective, attractor, and this might not be your field either, but it, it may be just sort of prompting some thought as, listening to you here, um, when... Organisations don't know what they don't know in terms of um, lead indicators for whistleblower complaints and um, you know measuring culture in an organisation around breaches of code of conduct and engagement surveys and all those sorts of um, things that have kind of made their way into this space. Um, what are the other sorts of things that organisations could be doing from a kind of like a proactive approach to this sort of area?
2: To me, the most critical thing is you must be prepared to measure your culture because you can't manage what you're not measuring. Um, And often engagement surveys are taken as a substitute for measuring culture, but they don't measure culture. And engagement surveys can be... um, can be influenced in all sorts of ways, so I'm not a big fan of them. When you measure culture, what you're doing is you're saying the organization says this is our values and these are the behaviors we reward, and then you go into an organization and you ask people at every level, "How do you experience this organization against those? Uh, is, it, is it is it a safe place to work? Is it something you would uh, you you would recommend to your friends?" Um, is it um, somewhere where you feel you can do your best work? So you're always measuring that gap between the organization's espoused values and how things happen, the informal culture, between the formal culture and informal culture. And then what leaders do is they close that gap because they recognize that in that gap is all the toxic behaviors that you find, the bullying, the fraud, the conflicts of interest. So the more you close that Gap, And many organizations are really good at doing this. Um, one of the most famous is probably um, Zappos. And Zappos is an online shoe manufacturer. Do you know them? No. So Zappos is, is well, they've just been bought out, I think, by um, PayPal. But they were, or Amazon maybe, but they were America's number one online shoe company. And they value their culture so much that when they get new recruits, they put them through a four-week induction period. And after that four-week induction period, they offer them $5,000 to walk away if they feel they cannot sign up to the organization's standards and values. That's how much they value their culture. So rather than let someone come in and start to undermine and compromise and do things their way rather than the Zapple way, they're prepared to give them $5,000 to walk away. That, to me, is a symbol of uh, an organization that, that understands the true value of their culture. And, of course, they're number one in their industry. And if you look at any of the employers of choice, you'll find that they are measuring culture and managing culture, and it pays off in that high-performance culture you can't really get a high-performance culture unless you measure culture. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, definitely.
1: Have you seen any really good examples
2: of a um, culture turnaround? Cultural turnaround. Um, I'm trying to think now quickly. Uh, cultural turnaround. Well, there's an organisation I work for uh, where... Without naming names. <laughs> <laughs> it was part of... Uh, yeah, without naming name. Part of the whole GFC uh, debacle, and it was a big insurance company. And so it was cut off from its American parent because the Americans said, We will bail out the American arm, but we're not going to bail out basically the rest of the world. So this organization then decided to float and became an independent uh, IPO, independent organization. And they learned the lesson from the GFC. They said, you know, we've really damaged our reputation in this industry or this industry's really damaged our reputation. We only have one chance to get it right again. And so from, from day one after the IPO, they started measuring their culture, and they've been doing that for the, for the next for the last 10 years. And there's been a huge you know turnaround. Well, not only are they the third biggest uh, financial company in this area, but they're the employer of choice. So there are there are many benefits to it, um, yeah. So yeah, and so have they seen an improvement consistently
0: over time in that ten year period? Attractor,
2: every industry has improved. But what they've done now they operate in in fourteen different countries. Is when they get the benchmark of the culture in each country, they say to the country leaders, "Well, you're not performing as well in this area as say this other country." Go to that country and see what they're doing that you're not doing and you've got 12 months to improve your index before we measure you again. So it's about measuring by itself won't do anything. You actually have to then respond to what you find and, and set a target for how you're going to improve it. So it's that constant, continuous learning, uh, accepting that culture doesn't stay, stand still. You've got to continually be improving it. And, of course, the whole governance world has changed so much for organizations now that whereas boards often believed that culture was the responsibility of the CEO. I, I did an interview with boards uh, maybe 15 years ago when I was at KPMG, and I interviewed some of the top boards around the country, and they said, oh, no, no, we're not uh, responsible for uh, culture. That's the CEO's. That's his day-to-day accountability. And then I did the interview with the CEOs, and they said, oh, no, we're not responsible for culture. We're only here for three and a half years, and if we don't make it in three and a half years, we're out the door. So, you know, I'm being judged on something quite differently. Well, that's all changed now. Post the Royal Commission into the finance and insurance industries, boards have recognized that they have got to step up to, Um, either uh, appointing a CEO that can set the right tone in the organization or ensuring that that CEO is being measured for the culture that emerges under his leadership or her leadership, uh, rather than letting it just be something that's organic. If you um, don't measure culture and manage it, it grows organically. And so you can go into some organizations and you'll find different cultures in different pockets, and you know that that's the length and shadow of the general manager in that area, rather than the organisation. So, so you've got a schizophrenic organisation, and like human beings, if you've got schizophrenia, you're prone to breakdown. So, it's in everyone's interests to to make sure everyone's rowing in the same boat in the same direction. Oh, oh it's back to my kayak example. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs>
0: So, you oh. briefly touched on before around um, incentives and um, that, uh, you know, not incentivising in terms of um, sort of dangling that carrot out in front of employees but creating yes. the culture as a whole. What sort of incentives do you see as being the right um, retention and attraction model for okay. businesses?
2: So, of course, it depends on the area of focus of the organization, if you're a not-for-profit or if you're a for-profit. For-profits need to question the assumption that people are only extrinsically modified because, as I said, the science shows us that we're actually pro-social and people get a lot of um, satisfaction from uh, being able to help their uh, Their colleagues. So, for example, instead of having individual rewards, you could have team rewards. So, you could have team members uh, nominate which team member has contributed the most. recognition is a very important thing for people but it doesn't have to be a monetary recognition it could be uh, recognition all sorts of recognitions for say the best team player the most innovative you could start to have a whole different system of of rewards available uh, to you um having lunch with the ceo i think in many of the big organizations where i work with that would be enormous recognition and kudos for people being able to sit in on an exco meeting, the more people can see how the system works, how the whole of the organisation works, the better they can actually perform. And those are all symbols of recognition. Um, uh, So, of course, you can have monetary incentives, but the monetary incentives could be shared uh, throughout the department. Um, Getting people to recognise each other um, is another way of rewarding people. People basically come to work and they want, they come to an organization to work because they want to be part of a bigger story. And we often don't give them that um, that benefit by talking about the bigger story and how that person is contributing to the success of the bigger story. so that we get this hierarchical thing where, oh, no, the people at the top are really important and I'm not really that important. But that syndrome doesn't have to exist. Everyone contributes to an organisation's success. So recognising that is one of the biggest rewards that you can give people. I think that's
1: a great idea about the um, executive committee because they can just go in there and sort of express their views and um, views of people that maybe report to them that don't usually get to that sort of level.
2: Yes. uh, So so I missed the question, Deb. Did you ask me a
1: question? No, no. I was just saying I think it's a great idea what you said about them maybe going to an executive committee meeting as as a reward for their... I
2: know. know, And it would actually benefit the organisation so much because those people... I mean, leadership's at every level. And you really want to have someone at every level sitting in on some of those things so they get to see... How the picture, the whole picture, and once you know how the, the whole picture gets together, fits together, you can find your place and increase your contribution. Now, the really funny thing is that in the science tells us that that's critical for females, they actually have to see the big picture first, and then they can find out how to fit into that big picture. Not so critical for uh, males for some reason, yeah.
0: Um, with the um. Before, when you were talking about the different pockets of culture and fraud and conflicts of interest and things like that, is there, um, when you go into an organization, do you conduct a cultural audit or and how does that work?
2: Yes, yes, it's a cultural audit. So it, it works on three levels. So we would go in and we would do focus groups across each section in the organization. We would do one to one interviews with the leadership team because What we're trying to see is there a shared idea, a shared success formula for the organization, because believe it or not, when you go into the leadership team, you can, people often assume that everyone thinks like me. And the first thing that we discover when we do a cultural audit at the top is that not all the leaders are thinking in the same way. So you've got your cross-section workshops, focus groups, you've got your individual one-to-ones, and then we do an electronic diagnostic through an organization. So, um, the last organisation we worked with had 135,000 employees, so there's no way we were going to be able to do, um, you know, focus groups with everyone. So we did focus groups, um, a representative sample of the organisational size. We did the one-to-ones with the exco members, and then we sent in an electronic survey. And so we're comparing those three sources of truth, basically. And what you find often is that the view from the top is much rosier than the view from the bottom. Um, And then you've got a different view in the middle. And then what you do with the results is that you feed it back to each of those three groups. So we're verifying, is this your experience? What what perhaps is leading you to this conclusion? What needs to happen for you to change your idea of how things happen here? we all suffer from 173 biases and shortcuts in the way we think. This is what the science tells us. So increasingly we're challenging people to to think about the assumptions they bring to the table because you're not coming into an organization. You're not developing your strategy from square one. You're actually projecting onto your strategy all your assumptions. You know, people are inherently lazy, people aren't self-motivated, all those other things. So you've got to... Um, surface all those assumptions so for example uh, the science tells us most people see themselves as ethical we actually see ourselves as ethical people so when they're forced to do e-learning e-learning ethics training programs they dismiss it as not relevant to them because i'm an ethical person so somehow when you do ethics training you've got to flag from the very beginning look we know you're an ethical person, but here's the contextual pressures that will challenge you. So, for example, the biggest sociological pressure in every organisation is the pressure to go along to get along. And it actually gets stronger the higher up the organisation you go. So we see that in boardroom dynamics. We saw that recently with the AMP debacle, where people went along with a opinion led by the chair. So you go along to get along. So um, you surface all of that, um, and then you can help people learn better because you're saying to people, I know where you're starting from, but that's that's um, not always in your control. You'll find yourself in a context where it be time pressures, budget pressures, peer pressures, loyalty to the group pressures. They will push you over the line because we have the science to show that. So how will you offset that? How can we design an environment that offsets that? that that's what we talk about. About designing the organizational culture,
0: and is that something that you then go in and um, help that organization design as well, attractor and yes. implement it?
2: Yes, people inside the organization always know the best ways. They know they know the methods that work best in that organizational context. So I can bring in the science. I can uh, inform people about their biases. I can train people how to use a, an ethical decision-making model so that that would be a nudge to make the right decision. Um, I, we also have lots of other sort of choice architecture, it's called. So, for example, they'll find that just putting a poster on trading, a poster with a set of eyes on trading room floors increases the level of honesty. So every treasury department Anywhere people are handling money should have sets of eyes. So that's a nudge, to be more honest. It just it pushes us out of our reactive mode into a more conscious mode. Or as Daniel Kahneman says, we operate out of system one and system two thinking or fast thinking and slow thinking. Fast thinking is basically habitual, it's reactive. So we've always done it this way, whereas slow thinking is actually reflective. So when you're asked to use an ethical decision-making model, you're asked to be much more reflective, when you see a set of eyes, you're, you're being nudged to be more reflective. What does that mean? Someone's watching me. So you can nudge people. You can prime people. Now, how you prime people is that you give them information at the point of the decision. So, for example, if um, someone's placing a large order or it's Christmas and there's the potential of vendor gifts You give them the information at that point. Remember, it's against company policy to accept gifts over $50. So you're priming people to make the right decision. Um, It's the same in in our personal lives. You know, if you want to lose weight, you can prime yourself. um, You can design your environment by, first of all, using a smaller plate. The science tells us if we eat on smaller plates, we actually eat less. So there's a way you can design your environment so you can um act out the way you want to act out you know make the right choice this these helps these these interventions help people make the right choice for them, not just for the organization Do so the color of the eyes on the poster make a difference <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably would actually because uh the more realistic it is uh uh the the more effective it is i notice it now when i go to major sporting events there are sets of eyes around um training training grounds you know where people have left their kits while they're on on the on the um while they're playing football or whatever you'll see sets of eyes around the training uh room and that's 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 basically to remind people not to steal people from people's kits yeah Tiny little interventions that don't <laughs> cost a lot of money but have enormous consequences, you know, really and for the and for the better. Uh, so it's so frustrating for me as a social scientist that we don't use this toolkit that from behavior science to make it as easy as possible for people to do the right thing. Instead, we espouse all this, you know, high floating values and posters on values and things, which really, if People aren't modeling the behaviour, what that's actually doing is it's 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 downshifting people because they're saying we're told to do one thing but we see a different type of behaviour. So they they downshift because they feel cheated, and then what does the science tell us? Because they feel cheated, they cheat the organization. You've set up that dynamic. So you want to stop people cheating the organization, you've got to stop cheating them.
0: So in large organisations, obviously it's a more complex business model. It can be, you know, you mentioned before 135,000 employees for one of them. Surely that's, you know, quite a large turnaround-type strategy, especially where there might be a poor culture or a toxic culture that's been um, sort of evolved over time. For small to medium enterprises, is it something that, um, you know, sort of what are the top three things that they could be doing now that might help... um, sort of cultivate a culture that grows over time that um, is the right culture from the beginning?
2: Yeah, but I'll go back to the beginning. So the science tells us the micro and the macro are interdependent. So you work on the micro level, every GM works on their area and the macro fixes itself. So it's the same with small companies. So you begin with step one, the organisation, no matter which size, is the length and shadow of the people at the top. So, what is the behavior I'm role modeling? Now, this is challenging because leaders are going to have to go and ask their people, "What is it that you see me role modeling? What are the messages I'm sending you, and are they the right messages? You know, is it or is it that you're under pressure and you're operating out of system one, thinking you're just reacting because you are the message? So, get your message right, and then align your behavior to your message. So, that's the most important thing. The second thing would be. Um, so first of all, you have, there's that. But then to even do that, you've got to ask for feedback. So asking every, every person that says they're a leader or that, that have people reporting to them should be asking for regular feedback because otherwise we're blindsided. It's the only way we can actually learn about ourselves and our impact is if we get that feedback. <clears throat> so modelling the right behaviour from the top, making sure that it's an organisation that seeks feedback so it can learn and improve. Asking how the systems can be improved. How can we make the system better so that you can perform better? That's the equation. <clears throat> so everyone asking that question of the, of the teams that they lead. And then lastly, measuring it. You know, I don't care. We, we've done uh, cultural audits for lawyers, a 20-person 20, 20 uh, law firm. You will know, being both lawyers, that... Often law firms are like 20 little different businesses inside under the one banner. So how do you align those 20 small businesses together under under the brand name? So um, measurement is very important. So uh, role modeling, starting at the top, uh, uh, role modeling, asking for feedback, measuring and accepting that you can design your culture. Culture, if you don't design it, it will design you. That's that's basically the bottom line. If you're not designing culture, it's going to shape you in many ways because the context will push you in many ways. So there's your challenge. It's
1: about putting ego aside
2: really, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, And look, the great thing is most people want to do the right thing. The leaders want to do the right thing. They want what's best for their organisation. They want what's best for their people. Here we have a new toolkit in behaviour science that says we're going to help you do that. All you have to do is use the science. Stop going on your assumptions. Stop acting out of your biases. Use the science and design a culture that suits your business context and suits your people.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, Deb, did you have anyone? Oh, I was just going to say, if anybody
1: wants to get in contact with you, Attractor, where can they find you? Oh,
2: yes. Um, so our website is www.values, V-A-L-U-E-S, au, and we're all on there so it's values.com.au love to hear from anyone if they're interested
0: fantastic and we'll include all your contact details in the show notes and everything like that as well
2: thank you very much for having me and listening to my story no thank you so much for coming
0: on today attractor we've really enjoyed it and is there any sort of top three any sort of top tips you want to leave our listeners with before you go today
2: Um, Well, uh, the the ethical dimension is really quite simple. All you have to do is ask yourself, am I having a positive impact on people or am I having a negative impact on people? Because we're never neutral. And then if you accept that that's the ethical dimension, the potential to negatively impact on people, then you can start to think about what's the alternative avenues open to me to minimise that negative impact. But don't say you're not impacting on people. So ethics is really that simple. Am I part of the the positive story or am I part of the negative? And hopefully everyone will step up and say, I want to be part of the positive story. Fantastic.
0: Thanks, Attractor. Thank Thank you. you very much. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www3